Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hi, my name is Dr. Ethna Dowds. I am a lecturer in law in Queen's University Belfast. And today I am going to interview Gemma McKeown as part of a LawPod series for International Women's Day, focusing on the theme of women's activism and engagement with the law. Gemma is a solicitor at the Committee on the Administration of Justice in Northern Ireland. And the first question I want to ask Gemma just relates to what brought you to legal practice? Well, I always had an interest in human rights and particularly in those that have had their human rights breached and are most vulnerable in society. And to me, a law degree was the most obvious and direct route to work on those issues. I did my law degree in Trinity in Dublin and then followed that up with a master's in human rights law in Queen's, which was particularly exciting because at that time, it was just as the Human Rights Act was coming into force. So it really was quite a, an inspiring time to be starting my uh, work in the human rights sphere. Okay, great. Thank you. So you, you've always had an interest, as you say, in human rights and working for the Committee on the Administration of Justice then, this is a non-governmental organisation specialising in human rights. So I wonder if you could say a little bit more then moving from your studies to actually practising and gaining a job in an organisation that specialises in this area? Yes, well initially after qualifying as a solicitor I worked in private practice in a busy Belfast city centre firm so it was primarily criminal law and family law that I actually started out working in and and it was great foundation, great learning experience just on a practical level dealing with clients and just really the, the court work and interaction I think really just laid a good foundation for sort of my future career um, though I don't miss the uh, on-call police station antisocial hours and the call-outs that um, was a necessary part of that job description so I did start out in private practice and then I moved into the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission and worked on their legal team as a caseworker which was really interesting and and at that time the um, commission was actually preparing their Bill of Rights advice to the Secretary of State so that was really a kind of a very interesting time to be working at the commission. After working there I then got the job as solicitor at CAJ. I've always had an interest in CAJ's work when I was doing my undergrad I had access to some of their research materials and when I did the LLM, I had volunteered at CAJ. So I was aware of the work and the sort of the, the agreement of their work and was very interested in when that position became available. Fortunately, I got it and I've been with CAJ for over maybe 11 years. So obviously I enjoy my work and still there. Um, and CAJ, it's been established and it's been going for nearly 40 years. So it's, it's quite a well-established NGO in, in Northern Ireland and focuses really on a wide range of human rights issues and equality issues and really it did arise from human rights abuses and concerns that were really documented at the time in relation to the start of the conflict. So a lot of CAJ's work is really focusing on embedding human rights protections into the settlement and ensuring that human rights really is the foundation stone as we move forward. And I really also was attracted to CAJ's work on using international human rights standards and drawing international human rights standards into the local debate and local conversation. 
So overall, it was a very natural progression to, to work with CAJ and I continue to really enjoy it and be challenged by it. It's, it's a very varied job. And whilst I do legal work, I also am engaged in the policy side of things. So it's it's a very varied and interesting job. And I, I, I really enjoy it. Yeah, well, that, that's that's really interesting, Gemma, to learn about your trajectory to CAJ and that coming out of law school and doing your master's, you were working in a firm where you, you engaged with various areas of the law. And uh, I think it's interesting what you note in terms of the context that you came to CAJ in terms of Northern Ireland and human rights abuses that were going on at, at the time. And even today, there's still lobbying and we're still trying to engage with human rights norms, as you mentioned. So I wonder if you could say a little bit more about what the possibilities are for lawyers engaging with human rights as a means to pursue social justice in Northern Ireland or beyond. Well, I think there's a lot of work that has been done, a lot of great work that we can build upon. I suppose that the main thing is having the Human Rights Act in force. And obviously, since 2000, that's been the most useful piece of legislation in regards to direct effectiveness and direct remedy locally. Rather than previously having to go to Strasbourg, we can cite, obviously, the various protections under the Human Rights Act. From my particular experience, a lot of the work that we focus on and I've litigated on deals with sort of the unresolved legacy of the past and unresolved um, investigations into death and injury. And that, unfortunately, is a very large piece of work that um, a lot of solicitors and, and NGOs work on and remains, I suppose, really, it still dominates our, our current day um, conversations whilst it's considered legacy and dealing with the past. As we know, if you open any paper any day of the week, you will most likely find some reference to prosecutions or inquests or unresolved investigations. So from my point of view, we have found using the law has been very effective, and whether that's by litigating through judicial review proceedings or engaging with various accountability mechanisms, such as the police ombudsman and the various criminal justice mechanisms. So these mechanisms were established really to remedy feelings that were found previously by um, the previous criminal justice mechanisms. So there certainly is scope for a lot of litigation and lobbying. And we obviously have a police service that um, is embedded and has a human rights framework from which to work. So there are levels of accountability that can be drawn upon when dealing with many of the criminal justice matters. But I suppose really, we, whilst we do have individual litigation, the, the bigger issue is really the implementation of a broader mechanism to deal with all of these unresolved issues of death, wrongful death and injury. And CAJ has lobbied with a lot of other NGOs and academics and Queens and UU to establish what was the Stormont House Agreement mechanisms. Unfortunately, there hasn't been a political will or agreement to, to progress that, but certainly we continue to work with that and argue that the UK is in breach of its international human rights obligations by not putting in place um, mechanisms to deal with unresolved deaths, which would be under Article 2, the right to life of the European Convention, and then also to deal with the failure to investigate the torture and ill treatment, which is under Article 3 of the ECHR. So there are successful examples, that's only obviously one particular example of um, the use of the law to progress and advance human rights. The other issue obviously is more generally the, the general call for the a Bill of Rights for Northern Ireland to reflect the particular circumstances of Northern Ireland and Whilst we know that there was that's part of the uh, peace settlement and that's one of the requirements that a, a Bill of Rights should be established, um, 
there has been resistance to that over the years. We're in a positive space now that we have an ad hoc bill of rights committee that's currently gathering evidence on that and CAJ has given evidence like others to it. So there is work to be done, um, but certainly if that was in place, it would address the particular circumstances of Northern Ireland coming out of you know a dec- decades of conflict and into a post-conflict society. Yeah, that's really helpful, Gemma, because I see that you really set out there the importance of having a framework initially to use and to provide a way for, as you say, litigation and oversight. And it's clear that there are ongoing issues in Northern Ireland. And it's it's great to hear about the work that CAJ and others are, are doing in this area. So I wonder if we, we might also have a, a bit of a conversation around women's rights. So I wonder if you had any insight or you could provide any examples about how women's rights feature in your work? Yes, well, I suppose most of my work is very closely related to the colleagues that I work with in CAJ. We're a small organisation, there's seven of us, so we naturally overlap in areas of policy and research and the legal work that I do. So one of the pieces of work CAJ does is it convenes a equality coalition with Unison and it represents, I think it's about 100 um, different uh, umbrella groups that represent the different Section 75 groups that are um, to be protected under the Northern Ireland Act. And one of those protected groups, equality duty groups, is gender. So a lot of work can um, actually come out of the conversations and meetings that we have with the various groups. But on a particular example of work that I've done, I suppose, more recently has been as part of a gender, a legacy gender integration group with other academics and uh, NGOs, all females uh, in Northern Ireland, and really focusing on the need to have gender principles to deal with our past. So that was work that was done in consultation with women who have been bereaved during the conflict. And it was really to address what was the proposed Stormont House mechanisms to investigate the past and how any of those processes needed to deal with gender parity, gender inclusiveness, and to really address the gender differential gender implications for women and men coming through the troubles. So that's something that I've worked with. And most recently, as a group, we were engaged in working on addressing the Troubles Permanent Disablement Scheme, which is the payment scheme for um, victims and survivors, and to ensure that a gender lens is really integrated into that scheme. And so that's, I suppose, a specific example. And then, I suppose, more generally, a lot of our work does cut across, obviously, women's rights. And we've also taken litigation against the executive and failure to institute or to establish an anti-poverty strategy. And that really addressed its legal duty to tackle poverty and social exclusion under the Northern Ireland Act. And really, it was a really central part to the peace settlement that has never been implemented. And that was in 2015. And really, the reason that we did that was as a result of a lot of work that we've done collaborating with other NGOs and others and identifying this um, unimplemented part of the peace settlement. And it had a particular uh, impact for women, given that the gendered aspect of, of poverty and the fact that women are less than men, have more unpaid labour, and are more likely to experience poverty. 90% of single parents are women, and they're more likely to be in poverty than any other group. And obviously children, I think it's half of children in single parents' homes are the subject of poverty. So that case was really important. Obviously, it had a... It, is to have a broad impact across society, but there's a particular impact for women. And the court held that, yes, the executive failed to uh, have a strategy in place and it must provide one based on objective need. 
So it was the first time that strategic litigation was taken really to challenge the government's failure to have a rights-based policy in place as part of the peace settlement. So we had this judgment and that was great. Unfortunately, there was a period of no government which followed this judgment. And so effectively, there was no implementation of it. But um, positively, in recent months, the executive has set up a number of social inclusion strategies, and one of which is on anti-poverty, as well as gender and disability and sexual orientation. And they've set up expert advisory groups to basically report and um, respond to that in the next year. So we're hopeful that there will be some positive implementation of the judgment and we will actually see some direct effect for those that are both um, affected in society, including women. That's great, Gemma. Thank you very much, because it's it's not something that I, I know very much about. So I'm sure our listeners will be really happy to hear that there are developments being made in this area, because I think from what you note, there's a lot of work then that CAJ is involved in around trying to apply the gendered lens to legacy issues and then also trying to push forward with that anti-poverty strategy. And you noted that a challenge within the Northern Ireland context anyway is the the periods of no government and therefore a, a lack of progress, um, but that is changing. And I just wondered if you could maybe speak a little bit more around, beyond that very clear obstacle, if there's any other challenges associated with trying to apply that gendered lens or trying to um, bring to light some of the gendered impacts of the likes of poverty and the conflict and so on. Are people receptive to hearing these issues or what do you find in your work? I suppose really, for example, in dealing with legacy, the, the, the voices of women has never really been something that has been high on the agenda. And whilst other NGO groups and academics and, and ourselves have raised the need to address the gendered aspect of legacy, the priority has always been on focusing on solely the sort of the, the narrow confines of what a death is and an article two investigation where obviously our argument is that there's a lot more learning to be gained from the various other investigative mechanisms into the past and there's really a need to address the untold stories and testimonies of women that were never properly reflected so I think really just the the nature of the legal framework sometimes makes it quite difficult to actually broaden it out and I suppose the main thing is a, a, a political will. If there's a political will there, obviously we can address any of these issues in a broader context. The problem we're facing obviously is that there's no mechanism in place to deal with the past as of, as of yet. So we're sort of talking theoretically right now, but certainly internationally, I suppose what we always do and what other groups do is we always sort of draw on international standards like we engage with the Committee Against Torture. And recently myself and other NGOs, um, three female uh, NGO representatives attended Geneva and provided evidence and testimony in relation to the particular experiences across the board on a range of issues, but particularly on the issue of the failure to investigate the past and what that means for men and women. And the Committee Against Torture made strong recommendations, which we have then used and implemented and incorporated into our documentation and engagement with local politicians to really say, look, here are the international standards, here's the international best practice, and there's an obligation to carry out proper investigations in a holistic manner to address the experiences of women and men. Thank you, Gemma. So I think as well, that just highlights the importance of your work in actually exposing some of these issues in the first place and bringing them to the agenda and using human rights to identify areas that require remedy. So 
on that as well, I wondered if maybe there, there might be some personal reflections that you could offer in respect of navigating the space of, you know, as a human rights lawyer yourself, as a woman, if there are any particular challenges that you have experienced in your work or if there is examples of good practice for example just thinking about people who might be thinking about getting into this as an area of work for themselves and what reflections you might have yes well my experience in the voluntary sector may be different to that of women working in private practice but I suppose across the field the work we do is very interesting but it can also be quite challenging and so I think the key thing would really to be sure that you have a good support network around you, whether that's colleagues or externally. And I work with a majority of women in the voluntary sector. And I think it's really important to have to develop strong allies and friendships and support with others that are working on similar issues and that really can empathize and experience, you know, are aware of the experiences that you're going through. More generally, like I'm aware most recently the Law Society and the Bar Council have been working on this first 100 years project, really reflecting on the fact that since 2019, that was the 100 years since women were actually allowed to practice law. So that was an opportunity to reflect on all the successes that have obviously been gained. But what work is outstanding? I suppose there's a lot of work still to be done and to increase the number, I suppose, really the representation of, of females at a senior level. I think that's something I would would really encourage. I know the Law Society does mentoring for females as well, so that's a particular aspect of support. But I suppose really just it's women to empower other women. I think that's in solidarity. That's that's the most important thing. And I think just more generally, we obviously live in a world where there is inaccurate reporting in the press and comments by politicians that don't reflect the truth and the accuracy of what human rights are and what they are, you know, who they are for. So I think we just have to be careful that we may be the subject of hostility from others that think it's okay to sort of criticize and denigrate those working on human rights but I think more generally if we have the support and solidarity of our colleagues that we can just continue to work on the issues that matter. Yeah that's great so it's about trying to to cultivate that supporting environment that we can all work in and just the last question then it kind of tails off what we just spoke about but I'm thinking in terms of would there be any advice that you could offer people who might now be thinking you know, maybe they're studying what they want to do next and how they might be able to carve out a path to working in a human rights organization. What advice might you give them on that? Go for it. Um, like obviously it's challenging, but it's very, very interesting work. And I think now more than ever, there's probably a need for um, as much work as possible to be done to protect all the human rights successes and gains that we have um, achieved over the years. I think that's really important. Obviously, there's been talk about a threatened repeal to the Human Rights Act. That's something that's of concern. So really, I would say that if you have an interest in human rights, follow your passion and really just get experience, volunteer, whether it's locally or internationally, try and get as much experience as possible and sort of find out where you really have your, where your, your interests are and join groups that are working on particular issues that are of interest to you. And really just, I think the secret is just to, not work in a silo because it, it could be a lonely path sort of collaborate and work with others that are working on similar issues and CAJ does that with you know we work with international groups and local groups and sort of bring bring the United Nations level and the United Nations standards into domestic conversations and I think the same can apply you know whenever you're looking for your career you just look internationally but then also apply a lot of the lessons that have been learned internationally locally and uh, I like the quote from Ruth 
Bader Ginsburg when she said, uh, fight for the things that you care about, but do it in a way that will lead others to join you. So I suppose it's just trying to bring people with you in your pursuit of justice and really just try and, and collaborate and build allies and alliances. I think that really does help strengthen your work and makes it even more rewarding. Okay, so your advice is just go for it. <laughs> go for it. It, it. it is obviously a challenging environment and particularly in respect of funding, that's a factor that is, I suppose, across all sectors of society. You know, there's no such thing as a job for life and funding is an issue. So be mindful of that. But I think there's lots of opportunities to, to, to work on human rights, whether it's in an NGO, whether it's in private practice or at the bar as a barrister or a lot of the bigger commercial firms are doing pro bono work and there seems to be a developing niche for work and that you know to do human rights work on a pro bono basis as part of their outreach so I think there is a lot of work to be done and it's just really important to find that area of work that you have an interest in and get as much experience as possible. Okay great thank you so much Gemma so I think there's there's plenty of opportunities out there and plenty of space for women to engage with human rights and it has been lovely to hear about your career and the issues that you're working on so Thank you very much for your contribution today. And that takes us to the end of the interview. You have been listening to LawPod, an informed take on current events brought to you by the law students and staff at Queen's University Belfast. Our theme music is by Colonel Chocolate and the Justice Triangle. LawPod is funded by the Queen's University Law School. Please follow us on Twitter at QUB LawPod. For more information, you can also visit our website, lawpod.org, And please have a look in the show notes for more information about the topics covered today. You can find us on iTunes or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.